I'm Magdalena Ball, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land where I am, the Awabakal people, and to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. My guest today is the wonderful Sophie Hardcastle, who joined me recently as part of the Newcastle Writers' Festival panel. It was a super fast session, and I felt we only grazed the surface of her wonderful new book, Below Deck. So I've invited Sophie back to go a little bit deeper. Sophie, welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, and I think I should also begin by acknowledging that I am of Gadigal country, the Gadigal people of the Eunora nation, um, and want to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, Sophie, can I just ask you to open the session with a little reading from Below Deck? Of course. So I am going to read the first chapter of the book. It's very short. It's called Dark Pink. You dying in your 20s is not romantic, he told me, his eyes dense black, half in shadow. He shook his head. It would be a waste. I remember that we were in my living room at the time and that I didn't say anything back, but I thought about it for a long time after. The word waste, swelling like an oil slick. I knew he was right. It would be a waste. But when I said I'd die in my 20s, it was never about the romance of it, the old story of the young artist perishing before her time. It was more of a knowing, a knowing that it was my time. I die on the eve of the day I was born, 29, almost 30. I've always liked the numbers 29, 2 and 9, much more than I've ever liked 33 and 0. 2 is red and 9 dark pink. 3 is uneasy green and 0 is empty white. But contrary to what you might be thinking, I don't do it on purpose. Not really. Then again, maybe I do. We're made up of myriad choices, aren't we? I shrug, shiver. It's cold here, on the wet stern deck, on the edge of this decade and the next. Beneath me, it is dark, icebergs suspended in the grey. It is all spreading. And I look across at Brooke and she winks and I smile and it hurts my face. I hold my breath. Do we choose to breathe? I don't know. I still don't know. I wish you told me the answer. I wish you told me a lot of things. Like that when I finally see the green flash, it will be equally amazing and dull. Or that life is a series of words and the punctuation is in all the wrong places and when you want to take a breath, someone has removed the comma so you have to take one there and if you didn't, too bad, it's already gone. Maggie, I wish you told me. At sea, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. So I've heard you read that a couple of times now and, um, and it's, it's beautiful to hear you read it as well because you know, new things come out um, every time you kind of go back into the text. But what I really, I, I really um, felt what came across to me most was this notion of choosing to breathe, which is a, a theme. It's a theme through all through Below Deck, but I think it's also a theme in, in Breathing Underwater as well. Um, as the title might indicate, you know, this notion of, of making that choice to, to breathe, to, to live, and, and breathing as a metaphor really for living. Mm, absolutely. And you're so right. I mean, this is a book about the choices that we make and the choices that we don't make. And this idea or this sentence that I keep returning to, we choose to breathe, don't we? I 
sort of this came from a philosophy seminar that I went to in Oxford where the professor was talking about a philosopher who asserted that we are the combination of every experience that has happened to us and that I am not sitting here making choosing these words um, with these headphones on sitting in my room choosing these words speaking to you because that's my choice I am saying these words because of how my reality has been shaped by all of these external pressures um, sort of molding my experience of the world over time um, and that me speaking right now is the result of all of those pressures and uh, when I went finished the seminar my friend and I were riding home and he kind of agreed with it and I just thought no I, I can't accept that like I have to feel I feel like I want more than that like I, I want to believe that we do have choice and that we do have agency and that we are autonomous beings um, and so I, I began thinking about breathing as a bodily function that we are doing but we're not conscious of it all the time um, we are not every time I take a breath I'm not making the choice to take a breath and yet there are moments in which life can be so punishing that we do have to force ourselves to keep breathing through those moments um, and yeah and so I think what I think what is most interesting about what happens to Ollie um, her experience of sexual violence is that she makes the choice to participate because it makes her feel like this is somehow less traumatic because she is taking some kind of control or has some agency in this moment that is so completely devoid of agency um, and so yeah I, I really wanted to to play with this idea of if something's happening to you, can you take agency? Um, if something's happening to you, whether you like it or not, does your choice count for anything? Um, and that's really what I was questioning. Mm. And so much throughout the book is, is Ollie making, making what appear to be choices, but there's also a, a real interesting contrast with um, the choices that are being made for her that she doesn't mm -hmm. make as well, the choices that her father makes for her to do an economics degree, the choices that her boyfriend makes for her, the pressures that are put upon her and how she perceives herself. And of course, the choices her mother makes, which um, probably shapes a lot of what Ollie feels is the, you know, the right way to, to live in this world as a woman. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and I think... I think her kind of reckoning or her um, reclaiming her body is, is, is arriving at a point in which she is making choices um, that are, yeah, I guess like a realization of, of her agency. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, one thing that really fascinates me. Um, so I know you were a professor scholar at Oxford. Um, you went to a lot of classes, including, philosophy class, <laughs> which shaped the book. There's an interesting um, connection there. Um, but I guess normally, and I, I know there's a lot of pressure too, when you are studying as a scholar at a university um, 
to particularly Oxford <laughs> um, to actually create um, or write, you know, sort of a, a nonfiction sort of um, research a paper of some description. And you, mm. of course, you ended up um, writing, writing a novel, which is amazing. It's a kind of an amazing outcome because it's so... It's, it's so different to, you know, certainly I, I know the times are different. I went there, you know, 30 years ago, but it's so mm -hmm. different to what I felt the pressures were upon me to be, you know, to be um, kind of hard-nosed and literary rather than, you know, writing with metaphor and writing with imagery. And, and yet you, you make all the points that you are trying to make, but you do it in an art, a creative art way. Can you just talk a little bit about what that was like for you to, you know, to... Um, as the result of your scholarship to actually produce a novel rather than um, say something, you know, more classically academic, like nonfiction. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I was very lucky that my supervisor, Professor Sir Jonathan Bate, uh, loves novels, I guess. Um, and the, the scholarship that I had to study as a visiting scholar for a year uh, allowed me the freedom because I wasn't locked into a syllabus. Um, and I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't have set what coursework that I had to do. We spent two terms doing research tutorials where I was writing essays every week. And then in my third term, I was allowed to do a research project. And so the other scholars who were um, at Oxford at the same time as me, they all wrote um, like research papers, as you said, non nonfiction, like academic papers. Um, and I asked Sobate if I could do a novel instead. And luckily for me, he said yes. And so when I was uh, in Australia before I left to go to Oxford, my research paper for my visual arts honours degree was looking at the role contemporary art can play in galvanising environmental activism. And this book set out as as being a book about climate change. Um, and because when I was at Oxford, I was researching literature of the environment and I kept, um, the, the thing that I found most interesting um, in literature of the environment and in, in researching the ways that the natural world has been conceptualized in, certainly in Western thought and in the English speaking Western world um, is, uh, it's like so often um, women's bodies have been equated to um, non non-human natural the non-human natural world um, and so there's this sort of intersection of the way that we think about women and the way that women have been written about by men um, and then the way that the natural world has been written about by predominantly Eurocentric, um, straight and able-bodied men, um, because that was certainly in like, England, that was who was able to write um, for a long time. That was who was literate. Um, and so, yeah, there's this, I, I was studying ecofeminism. And so that looks at the parallels between the exploitation of women and the exploitation of the environment. And so I think the reason why I used, uh, why I wrote about book about sexual violence is because I really was writing a book about the climate and about the climate crisis and about the way that um, the natural world has been 
othered in a way that enables enables its exploitation. And so um, I think readers will hopefully see that someone like Mac in the book, who has the utmost respect for women on board, uh, on board his boats, uh, or on board the sea rose, he also understands probably more than anyone else in the novel the interconnectedness of everything around him. He reads the wind, he listens to the um, he, he you know he listens to the rhythms and the currents of the ocean the to him sailing is about listening and then in like the opposite complete other end of the spectrum you have the boys uh the young men in their 20s um on poseidon who and another boat that ollie's on and they are tipping oil into the ocean and they are you know just chucking things overboard and they really um, sail in a way that's not about listening. They sail in a way that's about force and control. And that is so much uh, that, you know, that completely parallels the way that they operate in the space with one woman on board, um, the way that they treat her body and their entitlement to her body is, you know, matches the way that they think about the, the world around them. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thinking in particular of that instance with the fish too, where mm. you know, there's a fast and, and quick way to kill a fish, and they choose the long, slow way, the painful way. They're just no, just yeah. completely lacking in respect for anything in the natural world, which is an interesting parallel that you make in the book um, with Ollie's father, who you know is it, to me is almost the clearest cut antagonist in the book. Um, he represents as the head of an oil company, he represents kind of the ultimate in entitlement, in pollution, in kind of taking um, rather than respecting or working with, but just simply, you know, going in kind of um, without any care at all and, you know, taking what you feel you want. Um, And that's really an interesting parallel, the sort of um, Ollie's father kind of at the top of that. And then um, Ollie's boyfriend, Adam, who also just takes what he wants and doesn't understand Mm -hmm any other way, can't see any other way of looking at the world. Um, and, you know, that those are sort of the whole notion of, of, you know, having destroyed the earth, which ultimately could destroy ourselves, um, versus this other way, this other way that Mac and Maggie show Ollie of, of walking, mm-hmm. swimming in the ocean and, 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 um, and using art and, and viewing the, the beauty of the world. Um, so yeah, that's that's a really interesting parallel that you've got going in the book that's quite powerful. Thank you. Yeah, I I think I think Mac and Maggie's their function in the book is to show Ollie a, a very, very different way of thinking about the world around her. Um, and yeah, I think I think her um, her journey to reclaim her own body is also a journey to sort of reimagine the world in a way that is so incredibly far from the way her dad thinks about the world. Yeah. And I also, I absolutely love that you were able to actually prove your point about art and um, as being a response to climate change by actually creating art that is a response to climate change. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really wonderful that you could, you could do that. 
It's very like, meta. Think artists, you know, we often do feel as writers that, you know, you know, should I be out there on the front lines? So it's, it's really wonderful that you were able to actually prove that this is, this is a response and it's a valid one and a powerful one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess when I, when I wrote my thesis uh, in honours, the, the thing that I kept coming to was this like notion that art moves people because it engages them emotionally. And I think Hugo, Ollie's um, partner, one of, one of the really beautiful models of healthy masculinity in, in Below Deck, he makes a comment to Ollie when she's working at the art gallery um, about how if we were purely rational beings, we wouldn't be in this mess. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, he, he awakes or kind of reveals to her how important her work is as a curator because not only is she deciding whose work gets seen, um, but she is platforming work that actually does have uh, like a very political agenda, but that is engaging people because it engages them emotionally and therefore moves and, and instigates change. Mm. Well, you're doing art on so many different levels too, which is really interesting. Um, so you've, you've got, obviously you've got language that you're using in Below Deck, but you also create your own art. Is that yours behind you? The, the picture? Uh, oh, no, no. So this is um, Peru Stent and Honey Long. Okay. Uh, it's, it's not mine, but I, I mean, I wish it was. <laughs> I love that work. <laughs> so you're doing, but you're doing artwork as well, which you also did um, on, in your, um, with, uh, you were artist in residence with Chimo Adventures in Antarctica. What a gig. <laughs> and also, yeah. that would have been also a critical inspiration for Below Deck as well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it was, it was really interesting because I went to Antarctica with Chimo Adventures in 2017. And then I came back and I made paintings. Uh, basically, I, I uh, used soundscapes of glaciers carving. So I was listening to the sounds of glaciers carving and then painting glaciers in the colors that I heard glaciers carving in. So I was ending up with sort of these paintings of rainbow, um, but predominantly pink and blue glaciers. Um, and, so I, I think like I interrogated Antarctica and my experiences there for a year before I even thought about how I could write about Antarctica. And so I think that was a really interesting point uh, or like a really interesting um, in to, to talking and writing about Antarctica was getting to visually explore that space for an entire year before I even thought about how I could possibly put that into words. Mm. Yeah, and I think it comes through in the writing that there is a kind of, um, it almost feels sort of multimodal in the way that you come to the meaning that you're trying to express. Um, you talked mm. about, you know, not being, I guess, didactic or heavy handed in, in the way in which you talked about the environment, for example, but I feel it's, it's even more than that because it operates on these kind of visual levels as well as on a, 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 a um, semantical level. You know, I, we feel some of it rather than it being it, articulating it. It's, it's not necessarily the head in which we experience mm. what Ollie is going through. It's, it, it's, you know, in the colors, it's in the sounds, it's in the sensations. 
Oh, that's very cool to hear. <laughs> um, you feel that your art does yeah. that. I mean, do you feel that having these different modes in which you work, even screenwriting, which is you know quite different, I guess, um, and fiction and you know memoir and and all the different hats that you have, including your visual practice, do you find that these kind of coalesce when you're working and inform one another? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, they, they really do feed into each other. Um, I guess, um, you know, the, like thinking about if, if, so for instance, like with our series, Cloudy River, the TV show that um, oh, it's now on SBS On Demand, but when my friend Charlie and I made it, uh, that taught me how to be incredibly concise with dialogue. Um, because you only have, you know, it, I feel like the language that you use when you're in screen, writing for screen, has to be so, uh, you know, uh, not a single word can be wasted. And so that practice of, um, that, and that kind of refined writing. Um, then when I went back to writing the novel, so I, uh, Charlie and I wrote Cloudy River um, in this, in the U European summer, before I wrote Low Deck. So I kind of had this um, really intense summer of, of not only writing the show with Charlie, but then co-directing it. Um, and so we, it, it, that was another interesting thing of, of like actually dressing a scene um, of deciding every single thing that was in this room that we're filming in has a purpose and, and is there for a very specific reason. And so then I think that both of those things then influenced the way that I was writing Below Deck because, you know, Ollie, Ollie walks into a room and I would really think about, well, what does she see and what is in that room that is of significance? Um, and then uh, so the first draft of Below Deck was really short. It was like 47,000 words and then uh, the part of the editing process with Alan and Alan was writing another sort of 15,000 words to, to bring it up to just over 60,000. And I, I think like the reason why it was so short was because I had spent a whole summer writing um, for screen and, you know, getting very used to having to be so concise. And so I think that practice, um, yeah, really meant that I didn't waste words I don't, or I certainly, like, I wasted less words than, than I ordinarily would have had I not been writing for screen. And then, yeah, absolutely, like, my, I think with painting, I am able to say things um, or explore, like, landscapes in ways that I possibly can't with words. And then, uh, yeah, and then I, I guess, like, where the two meet or intersect, that's very interesting. I think that's a very interesting space. Mm, for sure. And I think that the brevity of all these perceptions, um, they feel very insular. So I, I feel like as a reader, you feel like you're really, um, you're really in a very intimate space with her in terms of what she's exploring and seeing because it's not spelled out. You know, we, we have to think with her. We have to see through her eyes. Yeah, definitely. And I, I wanted... Um, kind of distance in the book where we are like so we're seeing the world through Ollie's eyes but then there's also these it's written in four parts and there's huge time 
uh, elapsed between, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of time lost between each section. You know, every section jumps forward four years. And I wanted to do that because I wanted this book to also be about things. Uh, it's a book about silence and women being silenced and victims and survivors being silenced. And so I wanted, you know, the book to have physical silences in it um, where you also are calling on the reader to participate. Um, I think not spelling everything out, not saying everything that's happened um, really provokes the reader to imagine what, what is feeling those silences um, or those sort of, yeah, uh, unspoken parts. But then also at the same time, um, I, I wanted ambiguity in the book because I wanted readers to think about where is the line, at what point did this person cross the line. Um, and yeah, I wanted, I, wanted, I wanted people to decide for themselves where where the line is yeah, in terms of consent mm. yeah absolutely and it's not clear-cut really i mean it's clear-cut who the what you know evil is clear-cut i think in the book but what's not clear-cut is what could have been different you know where do we say yes where do we say no at this point mm. it's ollie who she is um but there are little moments too of 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 lightness. I want to point out one Easter egg since we're almost at Easter, <laughs> which I loved. It's such a small detail, but that just that little nod to um, authors that you loved in the beginning. Ah, uh, yes, with the with the books. Yes, book Davis is lost and found. But you know that it's really quite fun to to see that. Yeah, I think it's funny. So. Um, not only did I do sort of gentle nods to um, to some of my favorite authors and some of my favorite books, but also um, a few of the artists that get exhibited in um, in Ollie's or in Natasha's gallery that Ollie is working in. Um, several of those artists are my friends that <laughs> who are real artists. If anybody ever um, decides to Google them, they'll find out that yeah. They're actually my friends and they make really amazing art. <laughs> That's nice. It's a little bonus. A reading yeah. list and a, a viewing list. Yeah. So um, we don't have much time left, but there is a line in your book, which has been from the wonderful Maggie, um, which has been very well quoted, but I think it's worth repeating because it's so relevant to where we are now. And that is this life is a series of happy and unhappy endings, Ollie, but is also a series of beginnings. Never forget that. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, do you think we might be at a beginning? Do you think we might emerge from, you know, where we're at in the midst of, you know, what is pretty awful pandemic, um, into something maybe that's better? Yeah, so I actually spoke to, um, Osher Gunsberg about this the other day, um, and we were talking, um, about the potential in this moment to pause um, and reevaluate and to move forward um, in a new and exciting way. Um, that especially when we think about the climate, um, when we think about power structures, when we think about austerity and cuts to healthcare and to education. Um, 
all of these things, like this pause that we're having right now, like a, a global unprecedented pause, um, this is a moment in which we can rethink and reimagine the world and how we interact with it. Um, and I, I think for all the difficulty and pain that this moment is causing, it, it is also a, a hopeful thing to think about it, I think, as a new beginning. Mm. Yes. And I mean, even going back to some of the themes in the book, you know, how we relate to the world around us, how we perceive ourselves and what we can and can't take. Because the taking, I mean, it seems, you know, again, going, going back to Ali's father, you know, this head of the oil company and oil companies and the way in which they approach the ocean, for example, the way in which they yeah. approach the earth, the way in which um, certain types of mining, like coal mining, approach the earth. Um, and, and the impact that's, that's had on the environment, on the climate, um, on the world around us. Like, I think your book makes this point in various, very subtle, but also, you know, very clear cut way. Nothing is unconnected. You know, the way we yeah. treat, the way women are treated and women's bodies and the way the earth is treated and the way the world is treated and how we relate to one another, it's connected. To Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that was one quite interesting criticism that I uh, saw from one review that, um, that I try and apparently touch on too many subjects uh, or, you know, like that I try and tackle too many big issues. And I, I just, I don't know, I guess like I had to laugh, laugh or, or kind of maybe also step back from that because I thought, well, how, how can you speak about the environmental crisis without think, speaking about race and the way that um, the global South will be like, overwhelmingly um, and disproportionately impacted by um, climate change and the climate crisis in the global north. Um, how can you speak about the othering of women without also speaking about the othering of the LGBTQ community? Like all of these, um, all of these systems and of oppression um, interconnect and they like prop each other up and it's the same power structures that enable racism as what enables misogyny and sexism as what enables um, like wealth inequality and, and um, class oppression, you know, and it's all of these things are interconnected. And so um, I, I, yeah, I found that criticism quite, um, quite, yeah, strange or funny that um, like, how can you speak about any one of these issues without acknowledging how they intersect with, you know, a raft of other issues. Mm. And how they're enabled by these other issues. I mean, they're, you know, it's part and parcel of, of everything. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I was listening to Bruce Buchani's interview at the Newcastle Writers Festival, and, um, you know, he, he raised a very relevant point that, you know, we can't talk about a global pandemic and not talk about how we treat our refugees. You know, we can't mm. separate these things. I mean, we can't, we do, but we, if we do, we're missing we're missing the, the, the underlying causes of where we are now. Yeah, and we miss the nuance, don't we? Mm. So. Yeah, absolutely. So I know Below Deck has just come out, um, and you probably hear this all the time, and it's probably irritating, but is there something else on the cards that you're actually um, working on? 
Yeah, so uh, Cloudy River, the uh, the show that got picked up is a, like a proof of concept. So that's on SBS On Demand and we're, we're using that as a proof of concept for a much bigger show. So Charlie and I are working on that right now. And then we, uh, I am also, um, I'm hopefully going to start a PhD in January. Um, so I'm doing a lot of the sort of preliminary reading and getting my research proposals together and that would be in creative writing so my next novel would hopefully come out of that PhD. Fantastic that's wonderful so where can listeners who of course will be desperate now to get hold of your book if they haven't already got it um, where can they go to find out more about you? They can go to any uh, any bookstore in Australia and New Zealand I guess um, any online re retailer I think um, the Australian Booksellers Association has a very comprehensive list of, I, I'm pretty sure that's who it is, has a very comprehensive list of independent bookstores that are um, doing home deliveries. So I think like this is an amazing opportunity for us to support local bookstores um, to make sure that they all survive through, through this time. Um, and yeah, so there are a lot of bookstores around Australia are um, doing deliveries or free deliveries depending on their store to their local area so I think yeah anybody anybody that can support local bookshops and hopefully get the book at the same time is a great thing. Wonderful and your website's pretty comprehensive too just sophiehardcastle.com isn't it? sophiehardcastle.com that's right. Wonderful. Well, that is all we have time for today. But Sophie, thank you so much for joining me again to talk about your incredible book, Below Deck. And um, bye for now. Thank you for having me, Maggie.